Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Let's get Dr. Joe Miller on here. Hey, Joe. Hey, welcome. We're going to talk about the Biblical Critical Theory book. I'm going to put it up on the screen here just for a minute so people know what it what it is that we are talking about. This book, Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture by Dr. Christopher, Christopher Watkin, which is not the same as the actor Christopher Walken different guy so uh so if people have questions about the book we want to encourage them to put it in the chat joe and i have some things to talk about but i have to tell you joe i have received more requests for us to comment about this book than probably any other book in the last three years of the ministry um i think the title alone which we'll talk about in a few minutes like the title alone is just so provocative like it immediately gets your attention and um so we had you uh, direct a book group about it the last couple of months. You um, took about, I think we extended the group from six weeks to eight weeks and you didn't even have them read every chapter. It's a big book. Yeah. It's huge. It was massive. Yeah. And they were all overwhelmed uh, by trying to get through all of those pages, even in eight weeks with all the reading. So yeah, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. So I think it'll be good for us just to kind of give, uh, some uh, high-level types of comments about it. And I think maybe a good place to start is, you know, the, kind of the big picture is what do you think after reading through the book, you, you're, you've led a book group through it, you've read the whole thing. I'm about halfway through it. We're going through it in my doctoral class right now, but we're going a little bit slower and um, have spent probably six hours um, discussing it in our cohort probably have another six hours to go so um you know we're we're i'm reading it fairly inspectionally so it's it's slow mm -hmm. going but after reading it what do you what do you think Watkins is trying to accomplish with this book why why do you think he wrote it yeah i think the goals are great i think what he's trying to do is something that a lot of christians have done forever when we think about you know the book christianity and culture uh, what's, how does Christianity engage culture? That's really what he's asking. So it's not a new question. Apologists deal with this question all the time. Uh, you know, the way we approach it, if you look at cultural apologetics, uh, especially, uh, with Francis Schaeffer and his way of trying to, how do we take from culture, learn from culture, then reframe culture through a biblical lens to point to the person of Christ. So cultural apologetics is one of those uh, apologetical methods trying to accomplish the, the goal of what Watkins is trying, Watkins is trying to accomplish here is that how do we engage the culture? And as he wants a framework for discerning the good in culture, the bad in culture, uh, he wants to offer Christians what he says is a, a positive agenda. So not just picking at negative things. Like Let's not just, oh, here's a bad thing, bad thing, bad thing. He said, what's our positive agenda for culture? Uh, how do we use that positive agenda to challenge the status quo? 
uh, even in the church, possibly in ways the church is, you know, given into cultural bents. Uh, he wants to do it in a nonpartisan way. He wants it to be not, and I think I assume by nonpartisan in the book he means politically left or right, uh, or even maybe I guess theologically left or right might be his his framework. Uh, and he wants that analysis of culture that we that he presents to to reshape society into the image of Christ. He wants society to be reshaped in that way through through the image of Christ. Yeah, I I think that's a that's a good summary of it. I think he he sees in culture a lot of dichotomies. This is what he he mm -hmm. he points out over and over again in the book, and he looks at these as kind of false dichotomies and so he wants mm -hmm. to he wants to avoid the term third wayism you know he's not trying to do a third way as his own special term called diagonalization which we'll we'll talk mm -hmm. about in a minute but yeah he he really wants to provide kind of a biblical alternative to what he sees as the false dichotomies that um the culture puts forward in a lot of public conversations. And I appreciate the fact that he really truly seems to believe that the Bible connects to life and that it sheds light on mm -hmm. all of life. Yeah. Yeah. There's some X, you know, we can get to some of the positives later too, but uh, you know, I think the theology part of the book for the most part is really, really good. I wasn't sure where it was going to go uh, from the start, but theologically I find uh, that I resonated with, you know, probably the, the vast majority of his theological analysis of the text. Uh, you know, there's issues here that I'll bring up a couple, but I thought that was really positive. And, and I, and I did have some confusion about um, we'll get to the diagonalization part later. I actually got some clarity from him uh, through, through Twitter. Uh, had a few engagements past that, but I think he got tired of my questions, but what I was hearing in the book or reading in the book um and so, uh, you know, I, I think overall his project goals are great. I think he's trying to look at scripture as a final authority. He does believe in absolute truth and God is truth and scripture is authority, at least in the main of his approach. So those are the, those are the, the, the frameworks, I think, that are really good as he, as he begins his uh, project for the book. Yeah, that's good. And if... Um... Let's talk a little bit about the title. We've alluded to this. It's called Biblical Critical yeah. Theory. Yeah. So when the book first came out, I read the foreword. And the foreword is written by Tim Keller. And mm -hmm. he has, and I want to take a moment to talk about this in, in a minute about how critical theory is yeah. defined and everything. But after reading half the book, you've read the whole book. I guess mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking about the title and I'm coming away so far with the thought that I'm not sure that this is the correct title. What are your thoughts about yeah. that? So that was my first thought as well. And as I the more I started to read, uh, more I this title my initial instinct after reading the first couple of chapters was the title was chose for marketing value, not necessarily for any substantial purpose within the content of the book. Uh, it actually compelled me to, to uh, reach out 
uh, directly to Watkin and ask him about that on Twitter. And, and just to give, before I give his response, so the word critical theory itself is only appears 36 times in the book. So the phrase critical theory, uh, you know, let alone critical race theory or anything else, but critical theory as a, if you do a search of the book, it's 36 times. The problem is most of those are uh, either uh, mentions of the title of the book or in the in the uh, the the book blurbs, the endorsements he got, or in the foreword, the content of the book itself. There's a few phrases and some footnotes, but really, the, he never defines in the content of the book what that is. It's never used in any substantial way or meaningful way in the book itself. Um, and actually, well, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. the first impression of the book is that oh, he's going to write kind of an alternative critical theory. And in yeah, reading Tim, Tim Keller's go. foreword, which is one of the only places that the term biblical critical theory shows up. So you have the endorsements, which use the title yeah. of the book. And then in Tim Keller's foreword, it uses the phrase biblical critical theory. And it does sound like the way that Keller is trying to frame it up is that it is an, a competing critical theory. And, but it's just using the Bible as its foundation. But when you get into the book proper, it doesn't really seem like that's what he's doing. Yeah. So, yeah, this is where the weird part about it is. Um, and, and what I did ask Watkin on, on Twitter is like, so was this title selected by you or was this the publisher's selection? And he had said that he did offer several title options. That was one of the ones he had offered. Um, but to me, I mean, having published and been an editor on different book projects, my suspicion is it was picked and then, then Keller's brought in to try to say, well, make, make this make sense through a forward because the substance of the book really is, is completely, um, doesn't address or define the terminology itself. Here's, here's the only kind of relevant rever re references within the book where Watkins Watkin actually makes um, a statement. And by the way, I'm going to butcher his name every time. Like, you know how people say the book of Revelations and they put an S at the end and it's Revelation. I do that with his name every time. So I apologize. I'm going to say Watkins when it's Watkin. So, uh, you know. For the record, I, it's I just, Watkin. We're gonna it's Watkin. That. And I will butcher yeah. it probably half the time. And I don't know why, but I think, you know, it's like the actor Christopher Watkins or whatever. I yeah. just Walken. can't get his name. I think it's so, Christopher Walken. That's his Walken name. Actor. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> I get confused. So I apologize ahead of time. It's not because I, you know, don't know who he is. Or I just can't get it right. Okay. So that's it. So Watkin does say, quote, it's not just like critical theory. This is meaning his, the purpose of his book. It's not just like critical theory or feminist theory with different labels, reflecting the patterns and rhythm, rhythms of the Bible itself. A biblical social theory should be distinct and not simply in its content, but its manner made up of engagement. So he seems to use critical theory as a synonym for social theory. That's, that's the best I can make of it. And he's trying to say he doesn't really want to have it as an, um, you know, a, a rehashed version of critical theory or feminist theory and just sort of a biblical theory. He wants to have a full-orbed uh, social theory of how 
the Bible can reshape society. Um, he, he actually says it, and that was on page 30. On page 308, he says, essentially, modern critical theory is like a, uh, a secular version of Jewish prophecy. So this is one of the only places he really uses the term. But he gets the idea that he thinks critical theory is a framework for analyzing culture in a secular way. And he thinks that this is a as an analog to what the Bible has always done, which is provide a framework for critiquing the good and the bad of culture. That seems to fit with what Keller says. So yeah, Keller, Keller says, has his. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, he, read that. Here's, here's what Keller he says. says I'll read it. Yeah. Yeah, he says this, quote, critical theory aims to make visible the deep structures of a culture in order to expose and change them. Most are based directly or indirectly from forms of Marxist analysis, but Keller says older and deeper meanings uh, about just the critique and appreciation of culture. I have no idea what these older, deeper meanings are, except we're using a modern terminology of critical theory and then rewriting historical attempts to critique culture and just calling it. To me, it's a sort of equiv equivocation on terms. It's like when, uh, if I were to say, uh, I want to encourage critical thinking skills. Well, critical thinking has nothing to do with critical theory. The word critical just means the ability to critique something. So what Keller seems to have done to make the title make sense is saying, hey, sure, yeah, critical theory is about Marxist ideas, but we mean there's a deeper way of critical theory, meaning just to critique something. Um, but that's like saying, well, when I say critical thinking, I don't mean Marxist thinking. There's a deeper, more, it's like, no, that's, the word has no connection. There's no, you know, etymology of the word or history history that connects that and i would love seeing a footnote from keller where this ancient critical theory this deeper meaning comes from but it's just sort of asserted and i think it's to sell a title to be honest uh that will get exactly what you got everybody cares about it because nobody cares about a book called you know biblical social theory but everybody's Which interested by this should have been the title theory. of the book it should have I, been I agree called with that biblical social theory based on what the author says in the introduction yeah. it, i don't understand and, <laughs> hey siri, a siri doesn't understand what that means oh my goodness so please siri, explain that please explain <laughs> so oh my gosh i'm trying to silence it it won't stop <laughs> siri wants to talk about critical theory so oh my gosh that's so terrible. Maybe I'm sorry. we should talk about like what is a critical theory generally, like the normal definition. I don't know where Tim Keller gets this old timey definition of critical theory, which is just analysis of culture. Um, yeah. But typically, a critical theory is a technical term that refers to a particular kind of framework. And maybe we should. Mm -hmm you know, kind of yeah. list out a couple of those distinctives. I'm putting on my do not disturb from all of my horrible things that are going off. So I apologize for that. Uh, okay. Yeah. So let's get, let's look at that. So by the way, I, I would just mention the social theory thing. That phrase is actually used 43 times, far more substantially in the book, just to reinforce that point you're making. He, yes. you know, he talks about, he defines that term much more clearly in the book of social theory. Uh, and I, I honestly, I just think it's a marketing approach 
that picked that title. Uh, so, you know, I don't think Christians should be scared off by that title. I think we should look at the book based on the substance of it and just sort of set aside that. But critical theory itself, yeah, we've looked at before on others. I know you guys have done a ton. I think we've done a few conversations on that. I can't even remember all the shows that we've done and the themes. But I know we had that conference I hosted years ago that we were starting about critical race theory. But yeah, critical theory, as even Keller says, in the modern sense, comes from the Frankfurt schools in the middle of the early, well, early middle part of the 20th century. Um, and as that uh, Watkin is, is expert in, uh, you look at people like, or, well, precursors to that, like Derrida, but later people uh, that, you know, he mentions Foucault, which, you know, sort of certainly leans in that camp. He wasn't part of the Frankfurt School, but leans in that family of Marxist thinkers. So he's well versed in the philosophy of the Frankfurt School of, of neo-Marxism uh, as it took shape in the mid late 20th century in the United States. Uh, and it, it certainly is just think of it this way. The easiest way to say it is, you know, original Marxist, uh, Marxist thinking was based on, of course, there is no God. What's the, what's the explanation for the world? And it based used class distinctions to make these were the key differences between the oppressor and the oppressor, oppressor, classes being oppressed, but it was all based on, you know, basically money, who were the wealthy, who are the poor, uh, the new version of Marxist, the, the Frankfurt School looked at more social uh, influences of that. So it went beyond just money being the decider. We, that's where you can get things like feminine, you know, identity as male and female. You can get identities of racial identities can be used as those uh, categories that create distinction between groups. So it went beyond just the pure financial. That's the basic part of the most simple way to explain it without getting it to distorting yeah. it too much. Yeah. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia entry, you know, what makes something a critical theory, a critical theory is any approach to social philosophy that focuses on society and culture to reveal critique and challenge power structures with roots in sociology and literary yeah. criticism. It argues that social problems stem more from social structures and cultural accommodations than from individuals. That's just a very yeah. basic Wikipedia yeah. definition of a critical. And, and that's, yeah. And even if we take that, if we take that definition, if Joaquin would have gone with that definition, we realize that what his book is, is not a, a, a critical theory. It's uh, not because it can't be. Because he's he will say in the book that you know sin is the primary issue that undergirds all of these problems, not social structures. Those are not the source of evil in the world. Mm -hmm. Now they can create evil, and we'd all agree with that. Social structures can certainly reinforce wickedness, but Christians would say at the center of those problems is the sin problem. And Watkin has good theology, and he acknowledges that, yeah. which, again, if we take Wikipedia at its face value, therefore there can't be a biblical critical theory in that sense because we're not going to center uh, power structures as, and we'll see, I'll give an example later where I think he goes off the rails a little bit, trying to use that terminology to reinterpret of, uh, the fall through those critical lenses, critical, uh, theory lenses. And it, it kind of distorts the story itself. Um, yeah. so when we try to reframe biblical, uh, social theory, which is fine. Uh, how does the Bible help us analyze and critique society uh, as a critical type theory? I think you end up deforming uh, good theology, which again, he starts off with good theology. So I think it yeah. th th that's where the struggle 
that's for me where the conflict comes in in the book, where there's some irreconcilable differences between what he says in certain parts. Yeah, that's good. So uh, kind of summarize there, you know, we, we don't think the book is appropriately titled. It's not a biblical critical theory. It's not a critical theory. It, the book probably should have been called biblical social theory. Um, yeah. So, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about the audience. I think this is the next thing that kind of comes up is we're already getting some questions in the chat. Like, who is this book for? Yeah. Who is he, who, who is he writing for? Because again, yeah. in the um, forward, Tim Keller's like, oh, this is such a wonderful book. You know, it's a, every pastor and it's even accessible for students. And I'm like, no. Wow. No, I, I don't agree. So what are your yeah. thoughts about who the, who the audience is? Um, yeah, so maybe some like sort of a wonderkin students that are geniuses at age seven. You know, Doogie Hauser, uh, if we go back in time, <laughs> would have loved it maybe if he had the same genius for philosophy as he did for medicine. Um, but outside of that, it's really graduate level, possibly, depending on what the graduate students even undergrad might be in, you know, Watkin is, is clearly a well-read dude. He's very well educated. He's read He's a lot of stuff. He's weaving in all kind of literature and songs yeah. and mathematics yeah. and all kind of stuff. It's a tour de force of major thoughts and thinkers and all kinds of stuff. Actually, it points, I think, to the detriment of coherence. I think at some point he sort of takes people out of context to try to weave a narrative of all these historical themes because he's trying to create a, a sort of, hey, there's, we're all seeing the world the same critiquish kind of way. We're all critiquing culture. And this is a, a theme that everybody has. So sometimes where I think he takes some people out of context to say some things that I don't think are quite accurate. But um, you'd have to be pretty well read to even pick up on that. Because like I said, he just throws out names and quotes and people who theologically are very diverse, even from a Christian perspective, conservative, or maybe more liber, lib, liberal or progressive in their theology. And he just kind of throws them all together as if they're saying the same things because they use the same language. And it's just not quite right at some certain points. So, you know, in the, you know, dozen plus hours I've spent on dialoguing through this book and trying to unpack that, let alone the hours reading it. Uh, I feel like you'd have to be graduate, possibly a PhD level would be more appropriate. Somebody who's done a lot of hours and a lot of breadth I, of thinking. Yeah. I feel like he's assuming you have a certain level of mastery of 20th century philosophy to some degree. Yeah. Um, yeah, he doesn't define got, enough to, yeah, he no. assumes that because he doesn't give definitions, which no. is what you're saying. Yeah. And he, he assumes that you have an operational, you're somewhat literate about the, the various streams of 20th century philosophy. Mm -hmm. And um, in my opinion, this is a book for doctoral students. Um, you could maybe do master's degree students if they were specializing in cultural apologetics. Um, yeah. But I don't know if the book is important enough to make a room for yeah. it in that program. But I, yeah. this this is not a book that I would suggest every pastor must go out and add to their library and start interacting with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, that's my, that's my thing is like, I, I think it, at the master's level, it would have to be somebody who's getting a degree in philosophy, 
but yeah. that's generally not what Christians are doing at the master's level, even if they're doing apologetics. It's not a philosophy degree. So I think even most apologists wouldn't have the philosophical chops to really truly unpack the book. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely don't think pastor, I think what the book is vague enough and some of it, the lack of specificity and giving examples, which is a disappointment we'll get to later, maybe, uh, which was I was hoping for that didn't deliver. Um, I think it's vague to the point where if you go in with a certain perception of, of critical theory itself, whether it's good or bad, I think the book has enough, uh, enough vagaries in it and enough narrative storytelling that you can come away re feeling like, Hey, this reinforces what I already believe about this, these ideas. Uh, and I think it would be more dangerous to people that didn't have that background than helpful. Uh, Cause it'll just yeah. basically reinforce pre preconceived notions or ideas rather than really unpack them for you. No, I agree. All right. So let's give people a little feel for the format of the book because there's the introduction where he lays out, you know, his project. And one little thing that I want to say that I found particularly irritating about the introduction is that he has this long section of definitions and mm -hmm. the, the word he likes to use words in his own special way. And that is a pet peeve yeah. of mine. Like, Use the standard definitions. Okay, you don't like the word worldview, so you want to use some other word. I think he uses the word forms or something. I'm like, this yeah, is so yeah, confusing yeah. because every time I read the word forms, I have to then insert the word worldview because that's the word that everybody else yeah. in the universe uses. And I don't like it when people have their own special yeah. definitions of words. So that's just my own yeah. little pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, 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 as I told you before, you know, I, I think although Watkins seems to be either he's from the UK or from his Australia or both or wherever he's at his background, I wasn't sure where he was born and raised, but he's been educated certainly in the UK and, and Australia. But I think he has clearly some uh, German uh, genetics in his mind because uh, he he has that German tendency to expand simple ideas and make them far more complex than they have to be. And part of that is, you know, using this equivocation on terms or anachronistic terms that are unique to his book that nobody else uses. And then you have to try to go back and reference and digest it. Um, you know, why write in a hundred words what he can write in a thousand words is seems to be the approach. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, so I, it's really difficult to digest. So, getting a sense of the big picture is helpful. Here's what he's hoping to do. And again, I, I applaud this effort. I think it's a worthwhile one. He wants to do a survey of essentially biblical theology from creation in Genesis to the kingdom of God to come in Revelation. So the chapters are structured around, you know, Genesis through Revelation and key uh, biblical themes and doctrines that are related to those movements of scripture, right? And so what Watkin tries to do then is he, he tries to show how society, culture then, is really divided along these dipolar opposites, you know, left, right, east, west, you know, all these sort of things. And that's the framework for his book. And what he wants to do is then take this biblical approach that diagonalizes uh, in his word, that creates a connection. Like, so here's left, here's right. But if we take some sort of biblical thing, it'll it'll provide us this uh, third way uh, that stands between them. It's a process really of taking uh, our culture, uh, 
our cultural notions, what we think is true, and then looking back at the Bible to change those structures or confront those structures or reconfigure them in some way uh, using this lens of scripture, which in principle is, a, is, is not bad. It's a, it's a good way uh, of approaching that. Um, let me pause there for just a second. I mean, cause we can get into, I think what it sounds like. I think it's very similar to Hegel's dialectic. And I actually asked him a question about that on Twitter as well to clarify yeah go ahead let's get into that because i just want to give people we're not going to get into all the details but just sort of like okay what's he doing how does he approach it what's the philosophy behind what he's doing so go ahead get into that yeah because he's a well-read dude i I think what struck me first was there's marxism is is rooted in this hegelian dialectic hegel's philosophy of how you come arrive at truth and for hegel it was sort of thesis antithesis synthesis so you have a a a statement of proposition you know uh you, you you begin at a certain point where the culture is then there's a antithesis there's the opposite view so we could say like you know slavery is a a good for society Antithesis. Some people say that's wrong. Slavery is bad. So once these two things collide, you come to some synthesis where, okay, maybe it should be outlawed. So then that new synthesis is where the culture then moves towards. But then you take that synthesis and then that becomes the thesis. Then there's an antithesis. Then there's a new synthesis. So it's culture is always evolving. It's That's the idea of progressivism. The word progressive means always progressing to some new ideally in the Marxist idea of higher uh, state, a more perfected state of evolutionary state. And so that's what it does. But there is no truth that stands outside that would tell us what is right or wrong. Culture becomes its own definition of right or wrong. And culture redefines right or wrong as it comes up with its new thesis, antithesis synthesis, right? And so when I read his ideas, I'm like, well, this sounds exactly like you know, this Hegelian dialectic that he's employing. And there are Christian theologians who employ that dialectic. So when I questioned about that, he said, well, the difference would be that I do believe that there's an absolute truth outside of culture, that God uh, is truth. God exists outside of culture. Pardon me. That the scripture is a truth that stands outside of that. So the scripture itself is not subject to that process of refinement. And so that's what he affirmed to me. And I take him at his word for that. So he's approaching that sort of dialectic method, but he believes that there is truth outside of that, which is good theology to say that there is scriptures above that. Yeah, that's that's good to know to help clarify his position. It's wonderful that you reached out to him and was able to get some clarity about that. And... Um, so when he starts, he kind of starts with the Trinity. And so I would say in eternity past, and he works all the way through the history of redemption. So mm-hmm. he goes Trinity, creation, fall, uh, the flood, Tower of Babel, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic mm-hmm. covenant. He works his way through the history of redemption all the way through to the new creation. And so in, mm-hmm. and there's 28 chapters, I believe. And so in each chapter, he's doing this identifying of these kind of two dichotomies or two mm-hmm. poles and then doing his little diagonalization 
of what he thinks is the Bible's um, mm-hmm. alternative answer. I don't know how you want to characterize yeah. that, but but yeah. this is kind of the pattern throughout the whole thing. And um, it's it's basically a bib- what we call in theology a biblical theology and that it's going through the history of redemption. But it kind of has an eye toward responding to cultural issues. Mm-hmm. So using the framework of the the history of redemption yeah. to answer certain problems in the culture. I don't know if you have yeah. anything prepped to give us one or two examples to tease that out a little bit. Yeah. Um, let me let me turn. Let me. I, I do have some good quotes. I think that might be helpful. Uh, that I was thinking through, um, uh, you know, he says this, for example, um, and this is one of the place, this is one of the places where diagonalization kind of goes off the rails for me a little bit. Um, uh, he says this, the danger of thinking in dichotomy. So he's, his whole point is these dichotomies that culture presents left, right, Republican, Democrat, whatever those might be, moral issues. Uh, He says, the danger of thinking in dichotomies and placing yourself on one side of them is that you become shaped by what you oppose and hate. So uh, my sort of response, I read this is, so either I accept a dichotomous way of viewing or a diagonalization view of doing things, which itself is a dichotomy. So it seemed odd to me that he says dichotomies are bad. Scripture provides another way, yet his whole entire premise is a dichotomy. Either you accept the way the world works or his way. But he kind of acknowledges that. He says the, um, he says the Bible reflects on dichotomies such as differences between God and creation. The absolute good of God and the absolute evil of the devil is a mix of good and evil in every culture. And this is where he kind of says, so that's his theological example that God is, you know, not creation. He's one side creations over here, right? Uh, the devil is abs, you know, evil. And then there's, you know, uh, goodness on the other side, right? Uh, the, you know, there's, so there's these di- dichotomies that are valid but i guess his whole point is that culture deals in these dichotomies and it creates a a way of not seeing i I guess the dichotomies that would be true in scripture i guess is one way of maybe seeing how he does it um i I think there's some i get confused a little bit honestly because even in one of the even in one of the forward in one of the book the the endorsements um because what he seems to say is culture has this left-right. The Bible gives us a way of connecting it to a, a more transcendent truth, something that's outside the culture that will help us see the truth of God. If that's what it means, okay, that's fine. I think that could be useful. Um, if, by, if the Bible's providing the third way of these cultural dichotomies. But um, Richard Cunningham in his foreword says this, the astonishing commitment to diagonalize competing insights of culture and scripture is what makes the work so attractive, convincing and uh, convincing and valuable. So in other words, he's saying the way of knowing truth is to put culture on one side of the dichotomy, scripture is on the other side, and then we can figure out the truth somewhere in the middle. So the book blurb itself doesn't seem to reinforce what Watkins seems to actually 
argue mostly. Yeah, that endorser doesn't sound like he really understood the project. Yeah, yeah, it was chosen to be in the front. So I, yeah. I that's the really part of the diagonalization process. That's why I reached out, like, it sounded like this sort of Hegelian dialectic where we discover what truth is, culture defines truth. Now, Watkins says, no, that's not his project, yet that endorser seems to say that is the project of the book. And that's what he finds yeah. so exciting about it. So I, you know, there's these moments of the book that are really confusing. So I can understand why people maybe love it or hate it because they read mm. certain parts and, and there are confusing elements to that. Um, you know, which, which gets to the other side of where he diagonalizes. He'll often paint these pictures between two political extremes. Um, right. Right. And, which uh, could be helpful. Um, but in, but in large part, I think a lot of the, these two sides he paints are really broad brush examples. They're so large that I, I found myself thinking at many points, like, I don't know anybody who takes this position that he's painted on the, you know, the progressive side or the, or the, or the, you know, conservative side that he picks. Right. Um, so maybe that's partly because he's, you know, British, you know, in some history, whether he's born or raised, he's at least educated there in Australia. So maybe he's, maybe those examples are valid outside the United States. Maybe those are the dichotomies he sees. So that's a possibility. I don't know. I'm no expert in that. Um, but then I'm left thinking, you know, well, you know, we fought a war to uh, against colonization from his people. Uh, so I don't want him to colonize my theology with his dichotomies. So I, I, re I refuse to be colonized by his thinking. So that's my, well, that was my, okay. That's a joke, everybody. Just a little American humor or just, you know, a little poke at the rib well, of now, my British friends. We're getting some, some questions here and a couple of yeah. people want to know like, okay, what's, what's helpful about the book? You know, do you, do you think that he's really, trying to he accomplishes the goal of i mean i've seen some of the advertising of like this is pioneering new ground he's completely yeah. reinventing apologetics um yeah. do, do, do yeah. you agree with that yeah i heard him on an interview talking about like somebody said is your book essentially cultural apologetics and i actually don't think he knew what the term i mean he didn't seem to know what the term meant Mm. which was interesting because um, he never said, he said, well, I like to think of it this way. He never really said yes or no. And maybe he just doesn't want to be pigeonholed in that. I don't know. Um, uh, so I'm not sure how it's apologetically groundbreaking. Uh, to be honest, after reading it, I, I, this is, I'm not saying the good I like in the book right now in your answer, but um, there's not enough specific, specificity in his examples to make it for me what I was hoping it would be. So mm -hmm. the good of the book, largely, I, I think his theology is good. I think his survey yes. of biblical doctrine, of creation, of the distinction between his trinity and the Abrahamic covenant, largely is really good. Yeah, uh, I haven't I found any his, doctrinal problems in it so far yeah. in the first half that I've read. So Yeah. Um, so largely that's really good. There's a few exceptions to that. One of the exceptions, I could give you an exception to that is, uh, he talks about Adam and Eve, uh, quote, Adam and Eve made in God's image are to make more images. Jesus's followers have been making this made disciples are to make more disciples. Um, I don't think Adam and Eve's goal was to make more images. I think mm -hmm. uh, that 
doesn't understand the image of God in man. We weren't to make yeah. more images. It's to reproduce humans who are themselves the image of God, but we're not making more images. Uh, but that's poor, sort of niggly. I don't think that's huge. I don't think he, I think it's just a sort of odd trying. He's trying to make, Hey, they made more images. We make more disciples. He's trying to create the parallel there, yeah. which is a valid parallel theologically, uh, you know, in terms of what we understand that original purpose of humanity lived out through discipleship. I yeah. know what he's driving at. That's a pretty niggly kind of theological picky thing. Uh, so outside that, I think it's pretty good. Um, I think what's good about the book is to be honest at, in its substance he undermines everything about critical race theory that is promoted in critical race theory i think i think the substance of his statements undermine critical theory for the most part every time uh, i could understand why oh this is good this actually undermines critical theory uh so i think the project of his book the name set aside i think his theology and the way he frames it lets us know that there's no there's no marriage between biblical theology and critical theory. So for example, um, Watkins writes, and this is from page 95 of his book, every account frames humanity as the image of something. So he's talking about every philosophy, every account, you know, we're all made in the image of something, right? So that's what he's trying to say here. He says, if not God, then some aspect of God's creation. And to think Humanity in the image of anything less than God is to devalue humanity, right? That's great. I mean, if we recast ourselves in the image of anything other than God, we are losing our intrinsic sense of value, that sacredness with which we're created. That's what he's saying, which is really excellent. It's stuff I teach in my classes. It's stuff that I've, you know, built my whole PhD stuff on, the sacredness of, you know, of human life based on this intrinsic value in the image of God. But here's the problem with that, which this is this this is the good part, but the bad part. I would love to give examples of that related to critical theory. Again, he doesn't even address that critical theory directly in the in the book, but these are where I'd love to see examples of, okay, what do you mean by this? He just lets the reader fill in, you know, he assumes you understand his theology and then philosophy. Now you fill in the examples. The where the rubber meets the road is is absent in the book. But for me, when I read that, critical race theory says we're made uses race as the image of humanity. You know, this it centers race as the core of our nature and being, right? Matter of fact, critical theory in general, uh, you know, several writers I know we've talked about before will say if you suggest that humans are made, if we're united by we're all made in the image of God, that undermines the project of critical race theory because it doesn't allow us to overcome the oppressor oppression, you know, the oppressor, oppress, the oppressor, oppressor, oppression, oppressed person distinction, right? The oppressor, oppressed categories. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think in the substance of his book, um, he really does. He says, again, Jesus is no more, no more saves the poor because they are poor than the then he damns the rich because they are rich. 380 to page 382. So he's pretty clear that these these critical theories that categorize people of you're an oppressor just because you're wealthy, you're an oppressed just because you're poor. I think Watkin 
in his theology undermines all of those critical theory values across the board. So I just wish he'd give specifics on that. But uh, overall, that's a positive of the book. Yeah, for me, that I felt the same. I felt like it was a lot of opportunities lost in a way because the theology was there. I felt like the framework was there. I share, I mean, a lot of the things that I share in Center for Biblical Unity and guiding the the theological conversations, I'm going through the book and I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been saying. This is, you know, we're on the right track here. This is, this is what we've been teaching. But I felt like there were so many opportunities lost where he didn't draw the the connection all the way to, you know, how it undermines our cultural moment, you know, through and really does undermine the framework of, of critical theory. And, and yeah. I guess for me, that was a longing um, that I felt like could have made the, the book a lot more valuable it, as it is. It's just feels long and, has like there was this one part where he was talking about a Christian view of time and how, you know, covenants and how you enter into the covenant, but then there's a long period of time before, you know, you yeah. might actually receive the covenant promise. And he was using Abraham waiting mm-hmm. for Isaac. And I thought, okay, yeah, I, I, I agree with this. But then he had a whole two pages on, time theory and time folding and he was trying to bring in mathematics and i'm like okay so you're well read on mathematics too okay but i really wanted him to draw like a a a very deep um yeah application of that to our current cultural moment that the stuff about time folding i it just didn't do it for me it would have increased the value if there was more direct cultural conversation For it to be groundbreaking, he'd have to give a lot more specific examples of where does he see this good and bad in these different things. So let me give you one more example on the critical theory side, which is where I think this is where he falls short again, because he's, I think his goal, see his goal is people understand this. I think he's trying to be persuasive uh, to people who are uh, bought into critical theory that he can say, Hey, if you think the project of critical theory is good, I have an alternative that's better, a biblical critical theory. I think in some way he's trying to be, uh, you know, persuasive to those people to come, oh, I would think actually away from critical theory, to be honest. I, I think that might be a goal. I, I don't know that for sure. I don't think he'd frame it that way. And and he won't frame it that way, which is why there's a problem in the book of s- lack of specifics. He's hoping that f- people can just figure it out once he gives some information. So, for example, he's he's very willing to quote, uh, you know, Marxist Frankfurt School thinkers in a positive way as if they have some you know, they're reflecting some biblical truth in their writing, but he won't point out where they fail or where they fall short in reflecting that. So for, let me give this, uh, he quotes a philosopher, Peter Stodorzik or something, that's some kind of European name. I can't say it. So whatever. Um, he, he said, he insists on what he calls quote, enlightened false consciousness in which an individual or a group of intentionally, intentionally and ironically, uh, cultivates a state of consciousness they know to be false, 
because it's uh, advantageous to do so. But he, what he means is people will promote a lie to make themselves feel something or to convince people in the culture that something is true that they know is not true because they think it'll lead to some good end. That's all that really means. So he says, Frankfurt School theorist Max Horkheimer argues for a similar idea. The bourgeois embrace the ideal ideology out of cunning and a will to dominate, not because they are duped by it, right? So in other words, people will use a political strategy to that they know is false, but they can use that strategy to fool people, right? So in, in U.S. politics, we could look at something like uh, when – when senators and you know Congress, or when Congress puts up a bill, essentially that to, that they want to get passed, they'll call it something that's deceptive to hide the true meaning. So they'll say the you know we we're in Congress, we have the I I uh, it's it will be illegal to kick puppies uh, bill. No one's allowed to kick puppies. Uh, well, what's in the bill? Well, the bill is about you know bank policy. Well, why is it the I don't kick puppies bill? Well, because nobody opposes, you don't want to be the person who voted against the I kick puppies bill, right? You, you invent, the people in power invent these fictions to persuade people to buy into their project, but they know that their, their framework is a lie, right? That's, his, that's what he says people will do. And he's relating this to Satan. Satan created this sort of false consciousness for Adam and Eve. That's ultimately where he goes with this. But I would argue, given let's give an example. This is exactly this concept of race does for critical theory. Uh, it intentionally creates this enlightened false consciousness uh, where race is the problem, but race is the solution. And it just what it does is engender systems of power for the people who have power that they know that their ideas are bad, but they can manipulate people by it. So tell us, how does it do it? Don't just quote Horkheimer positively as if he's got some brilliant insight. Tell me, okay, he says something that aligns maybe with the Bible, but tell me where he falls short. Give me the example of why he then fails to properly diagonalize, right? He's not willing to even say a critical word about these Philosophers, you almost say positive things about them. And I just don't get that part of his book. Yeah, I think I, I felt that way about a few other people that he, he, he quoted frequently. Um, a, a classmate of mine in my doctoral cohort noticed that he, Watkin has a fondness for quoting um, people in what's called the radical orthodoxy movement, which I guess mm -hmm. I looked it up and it was big. It was like a little blip you know, like 15, 20 years ago. But once I was aware of that, I noticed, oh, he does quote a lot of these people. And it was kind of this brief postmodern influenced attempt to recast theology as storytelling, which mm -hmm. makes yeah. sense in light of what he's doing and walking people through redemptive history. But it, concerns me that he quotes so favorably a progressive orthodox guy uh david bentley hart which he he quotes mm -hmm. over and over and over again in in a very positive way and yeah. that's a little yeah. concerning to me um and i'm he, like he does the same with the marxists and i think that's his yeah as generously as I can understand that. And I, and I think this is a, I think this is a fair assessment. I think what Watkin is trying to do is he's trying to quote these people who I think he does disagree with 
fundamentally. I think he's trying to po- quote them positively because the, the target for his book are people that have bought into certain thinking and he thinks he can maybe woo them through this, you know, positive oh. talk about, hey, I like this person, but here's, they said, this is great, but let me pull you this way with a, a more solid biblical theology. I think that may be his project. Um, so like the people who have been kind of yeah. wooed by critical theory, kind of, this is the very subtle, winsome way of snatching them yeah. back a little bit. I think so. I think that's, that's subtle, a possibility. No. I, well, wow. I, again, okay, I'm, I'm trying to be to, as generous. I'll float that trying to be in my as winsome in my reading as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll float that idea in my doctoral cohort and see if anyone Yeah, buys the reason that. I'm stuck with that idea, though, is because when you look at some of what he does, right? If I connect the dots, he doesn't connect. I think he undermines those thinkers. I think the dots he does paint clearly undermine the people he's quoting. I I think he does undermine them. He just is not willing to say, you know, point out where he's undermining them. You know, he's diagonalizing them. In other words, but he's, he's wanting you to do the diagonalization. I think now I could be wrong. I mean, I could be totally wrong in that assessment, but I can't get away from the fact that he does such a really good job in much of his theology. How can he not see the problem with these philosophers that he's quoting? And so that's where I'm stuck. I just don't, I can't figure that out. So I'm trying to figure out how would I resolve that? Maybe that's his project. Maybe that's the way he thinks he can do it. I I don't, I don't honestly know, but that's my take. Now, Mel's making a comment here that I I wondered about, too, as you were talking, is I wonder if there's a a cultural thing, um, being British, being Australian, Mm -hmm. of cultural norms regarding directness and indirectness, you know, and we we tease, Monique and I tease Carl Truman about this sometimes, and I, I pushed him a little bit last time he was on our show, uh, because I felt like he was being a little too polite, but, uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. And I'll, I'll just candidly admit, I don't I don't mind the transparency, but I'm not smart enough to make all those connections. I I, mean, I needed a little bit more spelled out for me. And I think the yeah. book would have had a lot more value if that's what he's yeah. trying to do. If he's trying to kind of subtly undermine for people who have bought into critical theory and kind of try to woo them back you know, to historic Christianity. Yeah. If that's his project, um, I, I I think that's a great project. I, I could get behind that, but it's so subtle. I'm not sure how that, that's my problem know, with it. It's so yeah. subtle. Am I just inventing the connections I want to see, right? That I would like yeah. to see. This. And this is the negative of his book is I think he's so subtle in his, his actual substantive analysis of applying. He He does such a, a thin job of applying his diagonalization to actually concrete things that he's discussing that I think the reader could maybe come to the exact opposite conclusion and they might be justified. So if I was a critical theorist, there's parts of the book and I, and I got to these parts where he doesn't define certain terms. If I was a critical theorist, I'd say, Oh, so he's re he's actually endorsing my beliefs. There are points like that as well in the book where if I put myself on, on subjects, I knew well, I could easily say, Oh, I still agree with that. I'm a full-on critical race theorist, and I still agree with what Watkin is writing. So there are points where I could figure out what he was talking about that I was like, wait a second, that's very misleading. So 
you know, I, th that's yeah. the weakness of the book is he's expecting his readers to have such deep knowledge in all of these areas where he clearly has deep <laughs> knowledge that um, maybe he's just too subtle in that. Um, I feel like I, I have a knowledge of 20th century philosophy that's probably up there with maybe, you know, uh, I, I know more than most people. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I was struggling. You know, I'm struggling yeah. and sledding my way through it. It is tough sledding. All right, we're going to close it out here. Um, thoughts on books to read instead or books for normal people. Yeah. But, but with yeah. regular people, I should say that, you know, might cover some of the same ground but maybe might do it in a more direct yeah. or accessible way. Yeah. So, um, so my, my biggest, what I would say is the biggest negative and I'm leading this to a book. So what yeah. I would say is the biggest negative we haven't covered yet is uh, he, his, his relationship between Christianity and culture is really confusing at parts. Well, that was a question says, I skipped, but let's go back to it. Yeah, like yeah. what is his theory? Do you think of his relationship between Christianity and culture? Yeah. So he, he says this, he basically says there, there is such a thing as right and wrong. Um, uh, you know, in any culture, he says, trying to separate Christianity from culture is like trying to extract the flour from the baked cake. It is a fool's errand that destroys what it examines and only creates a useless mess. That's on page 14. And at the same time, he goes on culture. Uh, uh, he says on uh, culture and religion are entangled to the point where we find it hard to work out which idea or behavior belongs to which. Okay. Yet on page 15, he says, yet the Christianity that our culture retains is a poor photocopy of the real thing. I don't know how he knows what the real thing is because he seems to say that there is no real Christian thing because it's all entangled. It's only defined by the culture and I can't separate. So if every, all Christianity is entangled to the culture, how do I know what the real thing is? He never tells me what the real thing is. Um, now that, cause Christianity is distinct from biblical theology. So he's untangling theology in the book. Here's what the Bible says, but Christianity, is there a, is there a real thing or is everything a photocopy or entangled in the culture to there's no truth? This is where it's really confusing. Um, uh, you know, uh, so it's, it, that part, uh, it's confusing. And this is where he really goes off the rails for me. This is the most, probably my biggest consistent negative in the book where I think I definitely know what he's saying and what I say he's saying, I disagree with. He says that um, he confuses sort of the concept of culture with cultural practices, the macro, what is culture with the micro specific practices. Here's one example on page 502. He says this, a biblical attitude to culture uh, cultural artifacts or the practices, the ideas, anything within a culture is a cultural artifact. So the biblical attitude of cultural artifacts can neither be one of utter affirmation or of limited, unlimited condemnation. He says, uh, this means that the Christian position is open to discerning engagement with any and all cultural phenomena, movements and events, because none of them is utterly good and none exhaustively evil. So nothing with it, no idea is utterly evil. No practice is utterly evil. All have redemptive value. Then he undermines that like a couple pages later. It says, I'm not saying we should find good in everything because we don't have to read Mein Kampf and say, where does this align with the Bible? Um, but yet he says, 
multiple places, uh, you know, a dozen places throughout. There's nothing in culture is absolutely evil. Nothing is absolutely good. This simply doesn't align with what the scripture tells us. When God told Israel, hey, don't, uh, you know, sacrifice your babies to the gods, the false gods. That was utterly evil. God didn't say, hey, you know what? When you think of sacrifice of infants, you know, let's pick out the value in that and how it points back to it's good to worship something. And if it's good to worship something, why not just worship me instead? God wasn't trying to have them discern the positive value of infant sacrifice. Paul seems to be pretty clear in the New Testament, you know, when you, before you were followers of Jesus, you followed drunkenness and sexual immorality and all these sort of things. Don't do those things. Those are all bad. Paul is not saying, let's diagonalize these. You know, when we see orgies, um, you know, hey, well, we all recognize we want sex and sex was designed by God as good. How do we diagonalize that to find the good in the culture? So I, I he, he says this enough that there's no good or bad that I just, it goes off the rails for me. Now, here's what I would agree with if he said it, but he's not saying this. I don't think any culture is absolutely evil or absolutely good. I think there's beauty in every culture and there's evil in every culture because all humans are made in the image of God. All humans are Betzalem Elohim in God's image. All humans reflect some beauty of God. And so I think every culture has some beauty in it, but that does, collectively, the macro picture. But on the micro level, that doesn't mean every cultural artifact is a mix of good and bad, right? So racism, I think, is always evil. There isn't, well, you know, it reflects something decent and let's diagonalize that. No, it's always evil. Um, and so his, his statement is too clear for me to sort of squint and say, maybe he means this. I think he's completely wrong on that point. And I think that's the most clear point that he's consistent about in the book that I can say, boy, that goes off the rails. That said, I, I mean, I can tie that to my book recommendations in a minute, but that's that's one of the things I did want to make sure it came out. Yeah, no, which I'm I glad think you is did. a big flaw in his deal. No, I, I, I love that. Uh, super helpful insight. And I think... Um, yeah, I think just let's let's kind of give some alternative recommendations yeah. for for regular people that yeah. might want to engage in a, an exploration of Christ and culture, and yeah. you know how does the Bible um, criticize or critique the culture or find it, um, mm -hmm. correspondence to the culture? Like, I think that's a that's a worthwhile conversation that some people who might have had an interest in this book. They're like, oh, no, this book's not for me, but let's give them a, a different selection. So before I took my job here at Grand Canyon University, I had started a project uh, of, you know, bimonthly, hope to get to weekly uh, videos. Basically, my partner and I, Leroy, were going to go through every book written by Francis Schaeffer. You know, the complete works of Francis Schaeffer. We took a chapter every session and we were going to unpack that. Uh, I am a big Francis Schaeffer uh, a lover of his work and what he did. I think if you were going to invest your time in something positive, a positive project to re help you rethink culture, go through start with the God who is not here with Francis Schaeffer and just work through everything he wrote on those things. Because what he does very well is what Watkin is trying to do in this book, which is why I resonate with what he, I think what he's trying to do is a cultural apologetic. I think he's trying to be far too obtuse and 
you know, wonderful in his language and incorporate all these philosophers. It's just too, too heady to be useful, to be honest, for the average person. Schaefer was not that way. So if you want to unpack culture, now Schaefer is dated uh, because his examples are when he was around and he's dead. And so they're not updated. But that would actually be the fun part of that project. It's what we were tr trying to do is we were taking his examples from his time and culture and say, well, what would be the example today? That would be a great group study. That would be a fabulous Bible study, you know, or a book study if you're in, a, in your church, not a Bible study, but, you know, a book study if you're going to go through. Let's unpack this. Okay, he gives this example from 1930s and art and music. Well, what's an example in 2023 art and music? Because he gives it, he gives a lot of specifics where Watkin gives just, you know, sort of abstract philosophy. Schaefer, the rubber meets the road constantly. He gives philosophy. He gives, you know, the ab abstract, the, the, the philosophical, theoretical, but then he gives exactly concrete examples. So he's far more successful in this. And even as dated as his examples would be, I think he's far more useful to everybody listening, to pastors, to students. I would use him 100% of the time over Watkin at almost any level. And it's not because I dislike what Watkin is doing. I mean, I'm just saying as a practical point. Right. He's far more accessible. You don't have to have years of studying Western philosophy uh, to understand him, to understand Schaefer. So yeah. that is Yeah, what would be one or two to start off with if Schaefer is new for people? Uh, so I said, like the God who is not uh, the God who is not uh, not here. The God who was there. God who was there. Yeah, the God who was there. Sorry, I'm too many things running through my head. Yeah. The God who was there. Start with that book. Just start with the okay. God who was there and go from there. I, that, okay. that would be my starting point for him. Because it's really actually a foundational to really understand a lot of other Schaefer ideas and concepts. So it builds from there. So that's the best starting point. Like a lot of people say, which book of the Bible? Start with John, you know, right? The Gospel of John. Yeah. We'll start with the God who was there. That's going to be your starting point. That's my big one. If I had to give an alternative to that, honestly, I still like some of the old writers in this. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. I've used that in my language. Now, he's, the struggle is, you know, he's, he's British too, but he's not one of the bad colonizers like Watkin is. So again, that's a joke. I'm just sort of, you know, using the bad words. Um, so uh, he's a British guy. That's okay. Um, he's one of the good guys. And so his language is a little bit uh, higher than Schaefer's in terms of his use of language. He's a little bit more, you've got to maybe look up a few words in the dictionary to, to follow with Chesterton. Some of it, you won't get all of his cultural references because they are really steeped within his culture and his time. It'll force you to do a little bit of work, but I still think it's way more accessible. And he unpacks the culture in a way using, you know, the, the scripture as a foundation for unpacking culture that I think is pretty useful. So, you know, those Very are stalwarts. Good. It's not, those recommendations aren't sexy because they're not new, they're not fresh, but I still think their reason they're so useful is because they're good. All right. Well, thank you, Joe. This has been really a great conversation. You've added value here to helping us wade through walk-in and now we can uh, put it behind us and we can just refer people to this video. So, and uh, I know Neil Shenvey is working on a written review. I'm sure it will be wonderful. So if people want something in writing. But not as good as this video. But not Sorry, as good as this Neil video. But, yes. Yeah, this is better than anything you could write. That's right. <laughs> 
I hope this gets quoted. I hope it goes viral. I said that. Yeah. Gauntlet thrown. Yeah, well, Neil's also on the Academic Advisory Council, so we would only be competing with each other. So. Yeah, well, I'll do it. I'm, <laughs> I don't All know, right, Neil. Well, I'm, not, I'm not cool like you, Chris. I don't know, Neil. He's not my best buddy or anything. He, doesn't, he won't even follow me on Twitter. But quite frankly, you won't follow me on Twitter either, so what do I know? So You, know, you, the, you don't know. I have a secret profile. The CFP, <laughs> well, I tweet, you. hey, me you won't even you don't even care about me so neil's pretty cool apparently i'm not so his stuff is definitely better so i guess that's what i'm reversing myself his stuff is better when it comes out forget the video <laughs> well thanks joe thanks for doing this with me i really appreciate it and uh it's always fun to hang out with you hey i looked on your uh linkedin bio you and i have something in common we both have strategic as our number one strengths oh yeah yay yeah. and i have responsibility also as my number three so we got Yay, two in common for our top five. Line. I knew I see eye to eye with you. <laughs> All right. Take care. We'll see you soon. Take care. God bless. All right. Bye. All right, friends. Uh, make sure to share the stream with, with uh, your friends, your enemies, your pastor, if he wants to read this book. And also make sure you are signed up for the weekly digital newsletter. This is the one and only way for you to stay in contact with Center for Biblical Unity. Make sure you find out on all the latest and greatest things because social media is only showing our content to 2% of you. 2%. So trust me, you are not seeing everything. I also want to let you know that our next class starts May 2nd. It's going to be the God's Big Story class, where basically we're going to be doing kind of what we were talking about today, is going through the entire Bible from creation to revelation, um, and uh, just understanding how all the stories in the Bible tell the overall story of the Bible. So go check it out on our classes page at the Center for Biblical Unity.com. All right, friends, we will see you soon. Like, share, comment, all that stuff. We really appreciate it. And we will see you again very soon. Take care. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.